Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. U.S. September CPI data came in hotter than expected, rising 8.2% year-over-year compared to the 8.1% expected by economists. Areas such as food and energy saw a core consumer price index rise to 6.6% from a year ago, marking its highest level since 1982. So what should investors keep an eye on in the weeks ahead? Director of Quantitative Market Strategy Denise Chisholm joins host Pamela Ritchie as she shares what recent numbers mean for earnings and where advisors should look for opportunity in today's market cycles. Denise says in terms of sectors she's keeping a close eye on is consumer staples, healthcare, and industrials. She says although investors are worried about a possible recession in 2023, historical quantitative data shows that even if stocks go down, it doesn't necessarily mean the market will go down. She says lows in the markets can also give way to opportunities for investors. This podcast was recorded on October 13th, 2022. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects. I'm Pamela Ritchie. Denise, so happy to see you always. So kind of some interesting market reaction, actually. Mm-hmm. But uh, in some ways, like unsurprising with volatility. When you think about macro variables and when you're convinced macro variables are the driver, oftentimes something else is. Right. So you see this oftentimes in history of like buy the rumor, sell the news. And I think that this might be a situation where that's exactly playing out. In some ways, like the way to think about it is who didn't know that inflation was sticky? Well, and and the expectation was 8.1 percent, as you say. So it was it was 8.2 percent. So it's it's not too far off what was being at least expected and priced in, I guess, on some level. I mean, it's. It's quite something to see how long the Fed will have to stay at this level. I mean, there is so much uncertainty. I know that this is something that you've put into your research of late and shared. Can you share this with us? The uncertainty of really what the heck the Fed needs to do to get this down and what's going to do ultimately. What what do we need to know on that front? Yes. Let's talk about the quirk in the data that I'm going to talk about with CPI in a second and then talk about what uncertainty usually means it's and why. So the first sort of quirk in the data when when the CPI came across um, is the real big delta in terms of the upside surprise has been driven by shelter. So if you remember, of the CPI, the shelter costs are 40%, which is a big number. So it's a little bit of a wonky calculation. And what you're seeing is not just like a price rise, but a continued acceleration. I think it was like from 7% to 8% on the month. Anyway. One of the reasons why I really don't like to talk about government data, whether it be payrolls, whether it be CPI, is because they tend to have very quirky calculations that are only predictive 
in terms of the market over long sustained periods of time. And when you start to look at them on a microscopic level, it tends to fall apart from a predictive power. And I think that that might be one of the reasons why the market is reacting this way today, because all of the house price data that we actually have on a live basis suggests that housing is decelerating in the US and decelerating rapidly. So I am not the only one who sees this. I'm sure the Federal Reserve sees this and has a Denise Chisholm on their staff somewhere going, hey, this looks like a quirk in the No, desk. not you. They wouldn't have a Denise Chisholm. They, have they probably else. don't have a Denise Chisholm. somebody else. <laughs> but I think that there's, you know, a, a quirk here that I think that they're not, you know, just sort of leaving by the wayside. And they're smart enough to recognize that we say it all the time, CPI is a lagging indicator. And I think when you look at this microscopic data, you see things like that. But so that's sort of the ins and outs of what I see is the quirkiness of the data in the CPI. Again, we have at the overall level of deceleration, certainly not quickly, certainly stickier than I would have accept, expected, certainly stickier than the Fed has expected, but still maybe you can still see the path from not a pivot. We don't need them to stop piping. In my opinion, a market driver would be pivoting from the 75, right? Getting off the 75 train. That might be what the market needs to say, okay, you're basically taking your foot off the market's throat. But I think what's more interesting is, so what do you see? Again, this sort of buy the rumor, sell the news. Why do you see things like this? Because oftentimes at peak levels of let's call it uncertainty, that's the opportunity in stocks. So that, you know, the, to me, the best part about being an equity market investor is that I'm kind of comfortable getting uncomfortable because usually when it's very uncomfortable in the markets, that's where there is opportunity. And the higher the levels of uncertainty are, the higher your average returns in equities over the next 12 months. So you see 27% when policy uncertainty is high and we're in the top 5% of history, and I'm sure even higher today, this is usually a daily number. So when you see that uncertainty, while most equity market investors get uncomfortable by that, I actually think that there's an opportunity. So what you've seen historically is, you know, I say it all the time, the market is a discounting mechanism. And that means more often than not, when the bad headlines are so visible that who doesn't know that the CPI is sticky or that inflation is sticky, that usually tends to be the contrarian indicator. And the market may, maybe has already discounted some of that bad news. I mean, what's really interesting is when you see in the market, you know, things coming back and parts of the market coming back. There's sort of this discussion of whether you see a bear market rally and, and what's going on and which sectors ultimately are in there. Speak to the sort of larger rotation, if you will, that we've that you've been pointing out for some time now. But does it continue here? Yes, I think that the rotation continues. And I think it's driven in two parts. The one part that I've talked about before, and let's definitely talk about it again, is that defense is expensive. Right. You can measure that on a factor level with low volatility. You can measure it on a sector level with I'm going to pick on consumer staples, um, but I'm going to add in healthcare and utilities. If you aggregate those together, they've only been more expensive 4% of the time historically. Right. That changes your margin of safety as an investor. And that's why I think what we're seeing is if you were really worried about a global recession or a credit crisis, banks are actually holding in 
much stronger than you might expect, as is beta from a factor perspective. Why is and they that? report tomorrow. I mean, it's sort of an amazing, anyway, that to me, that probably doesn't surprise you, but it's interesting. Well, well, you actually do usually statistically see them underperform going into the reporting. Yeah. Right. So yes, it is a little bit off cycle. And I think one of the reasons, or at least in the work that I've done, that I think that financials are so interesting right here is because I think that the market's tipping your hand how strong valuation support is. So we are in the bottom decile of price to book, relative price to book going back to 1962. Same bottom quartile, at least, maybe bottom decile of relative forward PE. When you see that, even in the top bottom three quartiles of unemployment rate change, right? So the unemployment rate's going up, right? We're worried about that as investors, worried about a recession. So when you see that, your risk reward is still positive for financials when you're at that valuation level. So in some ways, your risk reward is the worst if you think that the unemployment rate is going to change such that it will, within a year, be in that top quartile level, that's 8%. So that means you as an equity market investor have to think that the margin of safety isn't sustained enough in financials and you're betting on an unemployment rate over the course of next year going from 3.5 to above eight. So if you are worried about that, then I think that maybe financials isn't right risk reward for you. If you think that maybe we can sort of uh, have a softer landing than potentially that, I think that financials have more valuation support than the average equity market investor. Thanks. And I think that that's why you're seeing a rotation away potentially from defensive areas of the market to, I'm going to call it economically sensitive areas of the market, like consumer discretionary, like financials. But you're also seeing another rotation as well, which is in technology. And I think that those high PE areas of the market still have some relative rating to do. Because when you look at the relative forward PE of technology as a sector, going back to 1962, we're still in the top quartile. So even if you are there on PE and the market potentially goes higher, it might not be led by high growth stocks. It might be led by those cheaper, economically sensitive sectors. Is it time to buy utilities? And I, I just sort of wanted to get your emphatic, which I think is the answer, uh, no, but you'll tell us. I, I shouldn't. So my objective is total return, right? If you think about, you know, what does Denise Chisholm do? I try to beat a market, right? So the S&P is, is my benchmark. And we're talking all about like what will likely beat the S&P over the course of the next year. Utilities do two other things for investors. They do provide downside protection, which you have seen over the last year. They do provide income, which you have seen over the last year. So to the extent that your goal as you know, your investment goal is to do one of those two things, I think utilities have a place in your portfolio. And regardless of their relative valuation level, that said, do I think that they are likely leadership in the market over the next year? I do not. And that is emphatically because their starting point on valuation is the most expensive they have ever been on earnings. So from that, your odds go to something like 10%. Your odds in, you know, for utility beating like on an on ongoing basis of the S&P, I think is only like 35. But those odds even slip further when they're expensive, which they are now, to let's call it 15. So I think that that's not a good risk reward. And I actually like areas like consumer discretionary and financials. And I'm increasingly doing work on industrials, but down the cap spectrum. Yeah, on the cap spectrum. Can you tell us a little bit about that? You've told us about consumer discussion. We'll talk about it again. But why do you want to take a look there? 
Yeah. So in some ways, down. let's talk about like small caps, versus small and mid caps yeah. versus large caps. We're seeing the two things that I like to see specifically in mid caps, less in smalls because they just have less earnings. But mid caps are sort of a sweet spot and where the two indicators that I watch valuation spreads being wide and relative valuation being cheap or low, which is predictive. And that's what you're seeing right now. So you're seeing top decile disconnects. So relative valuation spreads being very, very wide, which again is that expression of fear. Investors are selling anything they think is risky. They're buying anything they think is safe. That bids up that gap. Usually want to sort of hold your nose and buy and look forward a year. Usually, you know, most of the time, 90% of the time, that makes you money with double digit returns. So it's a really compelling risk reward. The second area that we haven't seen since, let's call it around the pandemic lows, was that valuation gap between specifically mid caps and large caps is now top decile wide on earnings, on book yield. And I think that that's very attractive. You are seeing that the most of all the sectors in the industrial space. So that's where valuation spreads are wide or fear is pervasive, and that's where relative valuation is really supportive. So I need to do more work on that, but I am very interested in that sector down the cap spectrum. That's fascinating. You also spoke about the uncertainty and that and that had to do actually more with, I think, the, the Fed and the uncertainty of where rates are going. There's a lot being discussed today about this being the last inflation report before the midterms in the United States. Again, kind of run through for, I think most people sort of gather that it usually flips from yes. from what it was before at this point. But um, does this number really put that into sort of some kind of stark relief one way or the other? We've certainly seen the polls narrow over the last five weeks, which is not really a surprise to at least our political commentators internally. So probably not a surprise to our clients who've been listening to us. But what you do see, I think since 1980, 80% of the time, something flips in terms of control. So I think the base case is that you know, you will likely see the Republicans take the House. The Senate is a little bit more of a question, but as long as sort of one of the two areas is flipping control, then there's basically, let's call it gridlock. So I think that that's the base case. You know, uncertainty tends to happen around midterms. I don't think this time it's caused necessarily by midterms, that's part of it, but certainly I think that we're seeing it around the Fed and inflation. And what you see is this really unique pattern, because I'm not a big speaker on the four-year cycle, because I think that there isn't really consistency in each of those four years when you look historically. So from a pattern recognition perspective, an equity market investor, I think, has trouble playing that four-year cycle and coming away with any alpha or odds associated with it, with the exception of the one-year following midterms. So if there's sort of a rhyme and a pattern within this, it is that uncertainty traditionally peaks around the midterms and is lower the year following. And that leads to higher than average returns in the market, a lower variability of outcomes and 94% odds historically, which is very high of that point in the cycle of an equity market advance. So I think that you're seeing this rhyme around the midterms for potentially different reasons, right? I think that it's not just the election that is uncertain. It's the Fed and inflation and other things. But that peak might be the pattern recognition that equity market investors might need to predict the next year's returns. Is there, you, you mentioned uh, utilities in the context of what may or may not be leadership. And I, you know, I think there are a lot of people still trying to 
get through right now rather than look to leadership. But what what is falling away as what will probably or likely not be leadership? You mentioned one. Any thoughts on sort of the winnowing out process here? Yeah, I mean, I think that in some ways it's the relative valuation rotation. And in fact, maybe like we should name it that over the next year. That's what I see. It's the relative valuation rotation. You know, it's not necessarily going to be growth to value. It's not necessarily going to be low beta to high beta. But I think that what you're saying is anything that's expensive on a relative basis, and that's the thing, it's got to be a stacking rank order within the S&P 500, is sort of has a negative skew in terms of risk reward. And I think that there's more valuation compression that might actually happen versus upside for earnings. So I think when you see that as a, let's call it a pattern to recognize, I think the three sectors at risk are utilities. And I'm going to add in consumer staples that I'm actually going to downgrade this, I think, at the end of this month on my webcast, the investment research update. So tune in for that. I think that that's definitely number two in terms of relative valuation. And I think three is real estate. And I think that that might be one of the riskiest sectors because it, it has that unique combination of sort of being expensive and having the most earnings risk, even worse than obviously utilities, but even worse potentially than consumer staples. So I think that that is sort of the area of the market that is the, the, the riskiest area from a relative perspective. It's ironic that those two, two of those sectors are usually the area where defensive sectors want to get defensive. And that's why I think that rel I've been sort of almost, a, you know, surprised by the level of support in terms of relative valuation, meaning as much as we want to say statistically, this is a macro driven market, it's been all about inflation, it's been all about the Fed. Uh -uh. Not true statistically. Relative valuation has been much more predictive, right? Value, I mean, uh, quality specifically hasn't provided any defense. Low vol hasn't nearly provided the defense that it does traditionally in down markets. I think the relative valuation has actually been more important the macro factors. And I think that that tells us what we need to pay attention to over the course of the next year. That is so fascinating. I've already heard just missed that. Okay, low vol and quality, just those factors again? Not Yes, low vol and quality not being nearly as protected quality, specifically underperforming dramatically through the course of this downturn. Let's talk about energy. Energy is just the wildest place. It is. And I have to say, I'm seeing less opportunities here. So I'm getting a little bit nervous about energy. I'm sort of neutral, but I think that it's actually neutral and negative. And I'll tell you why. So we've shifted really from there, you know, two and a half years ago, where it being a real bright spot in the market that, you know, really strong indicators that you wanted to buy. Demand declines are usually when you want to weigh in, partly because you get massive multiple expansion as you look through any earnings declines. And then we shifted to a place where energy companies are just more profitable than any investor ever thought that they would be, creating, again, like financials, very compelling valuation support. So we're, we were then in a situation where what you saw was a situation where valuation was so supportive that you didn't even really care what the commodity did, where valuation usually provided upside on a relative basis to, you know, at the, the you know, aggregate stock market where your risk reward was still positive regardless of commodities. You and there was nothing in the way they were just throwing money back at investors. Like there was just right. nothing blocking that. That's right. That's exactly right. But now you've shifted to a situation where one, demand is slowing, right? And slowing potentially rapidly. Now we can argue about OPEC and the supply cuts trying to bring it in balance 
But it's a question of whether or not supply cuts can bring it in balance as quick as demand may slow. But I think more importantly, you're now creating a situation where you've seen such a disconnect between the relative performance of stocks and the overall commodity that it lowers your odds regardless of valuation levels. Put differently, I think you're now clearly betting on a higher commodity. And I start to get uncomfortable betting on a higher commodity in an area or in a situation where global demand is likely softer than expectations as the globe and potentially even the U.S. shifts sort of lower from a growth trajectory perspective. And you always see the sort of oddness within the equities market, not necessarily the commodity, but the equity market, where it's not necessarily the direction of the commodity, which we just saw, right? The commodity was down and the stocks actually outperformed dramatically. It's more of whether or not it takes out the peak. So that it's sort of to me that the burden is on crude to go higher than 120 to really get to the outperformance that we need to see that for energy stocks to be outperformers. So I see this as a risky proposition historically. It doesn't mean that it can't happen. It doesn't mean I'd call it the clear short in the market where I'm banging the table but saying you got to get out of energy. But I think that we have to have, be wary as investors that there are less opportunities in energy more opportunities in other sectors. So to add on to that, and you've been talking about traditional energy in this, I believe, in this particular commentary, are you seeing a valuation disconnect actually between renewable energy, that space, broadly speaking, and traditional energy? Is it starting to nibble away at eating its lunch? No, no. For, there's still that valuation gap where renewables, just because the earnings trends are so much lower, um, I mean, it's hard to this look. I, I think that there is like compelling valuation support within the energy sector still. And it's very hard to get any more any sector that is that compelling based on the earnings trajectory that we've seen. So those disconnects still stand, meaning old energy is still dramatically cheaper with dramatic more valuation support than let's call it new energy or green energy. This question is going to the recession discussion. So if there is a recession in 2023, do you see further lows between now and then? This is in the equity market. I'm going to say no um, to give you a crisp answer to that. And now I'm going to tell you why. So the problem with recessions as it relates to the equity market are, we know this, stocks go down into recessions, but they bottom in a very variable throughout the course of recessions, right? We saw it in the pandemic as little as one month into the recession, right? Stocks bottomed all the way through to 75% of the way through the recession, and that was in 2009. So wide range, right? So even if you knew that you were going into a recession, you still don't know, if you're just looking at history, when stocks would bottom. One of the situations that is very unique this cycle, we can certainly talk about the CPI being unique, the Fed being unique. Yes, there is a lot of uniqueness. The other uniqueness is, if you knew that, let's say, in 2023, we go into recession, let's just say in 2023, in April, we're in recession. In those six months going into a recession, stocks go down by an average of 2%, right? Our last six months, we've gone down, what, 25%? So you already have this disjointed notion that stocks have moved before the economy. You know bullet point two as an investor that sometimes stocks go up, even if the economy gets worse. And you know, bullet point three as an investor is that the more stocks go down, 
the higher the odds the stocks go up in the future. So you could be very much in a situation where, yes, we are likely to go into a recession in 2023 and the stock market already discounted. The reason I am so open to that position is because instead of trying to predict all of that, I tend to rely on quantitative indicators that say exactly that, right? Defense is expensive. Risk is cheap. Valuation spreads are wide. That skews your risk reward in the market 3x any other historic quartile, right? It actually limits your downside because stocks have already gone down and changes your upside to a higher skew. So I look mathematically at exactly those indicators and I'm seeing that upward skew. So I, you know, that makes me wary of saying, yes, even if we go into a recession next year, stocks will likely be lower. Look, I don't know if they're lower over the next three months. Usually you start to, you know, when you bring in your time frame from like, you know, 12 months to three months, it ends up looking like a coin flip. So usually what I say is the indicators that I'm looking at, if you are willing to hold your nose, look through any bottom of whatever it is, you usually have a significant opportunity over the course of the next year. Do you think, let's go back to the pivot just for a second, and sort of the absence of everyone expecting it in a month or in three weeks or at the next Fed meeting anyway. And I don't know whether that's right or wrong, but it seems to be an absence of that in the markets at the moment. There, there appears to be less of that. What if there is more of a version of sort of the quantitative tightening coming as a way of providing an undergird to the overall story? I mean, we are seeing this in the UK, so that's why I'm asking. But you do wonder if things start to crunch and that piece of it, of the Fed doing some version of easing at the same time becomes more likely. What does that mean for equities if? I see what you're saying. So that the, we see a pivot in the Fed funds rate, but QT continues on. No, no, sorry, the other way around, actually, that actually they they take the pedal off the QT and allow easing oh. in that way while they continue the rate rise, which is which is sort of what you've seen in England, where they've well, the, the yes, bank of England gone line. into the market. Yeah, I so I think, that you know, if we want to use Bank of England as a comparison, they were forced to buy. They were forced to buy. They were forced to buy. That's right. If the Fed is forced to buy, they will buy, right? Because they are the, you know, bank of the lender of last resort. That is their actual job. But I think that we would probably have to be into a forced situation, like a collateral issue, as the Bank of England did. So I think that there's still the emphasis on reducing the balance sheet at the same time as you are hiking interest rates. Whether or not you know that has an overall impact on the market, to me, when I see it from a liquidity perspective, is specifically in mortgages, right? So if there was a situation where QT lightened up faster than the Fed lightened up, that would the biggest beneficiary there would be mortgage rates or lower mortgage rates, right? So which which have been sort of off the charts for most people who are in the middle of trying to negotiate new new types of mortgages. Okay. Right. Very interesting. So as kind of a final note on the macro story, obviously the inflation story, what are you watching very, very closely that probably we'll catch up with you on in the next couple of weeks? Ooh, valuation spreads and credit spreads. I'm watching always the two things that I watch, right? Valuation credits, spreads and credit spreads. So we'll see what my valuation spreads do because uh, I get them daily the day after. But I don't know what they're going to do now that the market's up. We'll see where we close. But credit spreads, you're still seeing the same trend, which is it's fairly muted today. We're certainly not taking out any highs. And in some ways, when you have these big macro drops, 
and you don't see real moves in the market, and to me, like real moves is a change in trend, I think that that starts to tell you that a lot is discounted. Denise Chisholm, thank you for joining us. Great to see you and a fascinating look through the other pieces of the story today, of which there are many. Always great to be here. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.